Hey, everybody, welcome to the story. Welcome to the story. What a day. Seriously, what a day. And after all this time of, of wondering and waiting, you know, and, and just overthinking everything and overcoming every obstacle, by the grace of God, we're here. And uh, he has just come through for us time after time. And I can't believe that this day is uh, finally upon us. And I'm so glad that all of you are, uh, are able to be here today. And if it happens to be your first day at the story, man, you have chosen the best ever day to visit uh, the Story Church, because this is our first day in this building, the first day of uh, Sunday worship after a, a long season of uh, just uncertainty and waiting. And I'm just full of gratitude. I could, I could just rattle off a bunch of, a bunch of names uh, to thank. I think I'll save that um, for the end of the service um, and, and, just kind of, uh, and just kind of get into it today. We've got our online uh, congregation that's joining us. I want to thank you all for being here today. Hopefully, the internet's working here. It's a, we don't know, but maybe it is, and um, it's been that kind of week. I mean, this was down to the, to the wire um, with our teams, especially our tech and media crews and our uh, Eric Ponder and the worship team. Everybody has just been working nonstop, and I'm, I'm just so grateful um, that they were able to pull everything together and, and just, man, we have so much to be thankful for um, today. And I just want to recognize the, the reason why we have so much to be thankful for is, is God. You know, I mean, he has given us so much. Let's just take stock for a second today, okay? Um, if you're part of the story officially, you're now a, uh, a co-owner of sorts of 3.3 acres of some of the most coveted real estate in Houston, Texas. Um, and, uh, and after several years, I think it was about seven years of having only 5,000 or so square feet of operating space, um, for the first seven years of our life together. And then in our second uh, little iteration in the museum district, the last couple of years, we had, what, 15,000 square feet? And that seemed huge to us at the time. And then we quickly ran out of room over there. The Lord has now blessed us with over 42,000 square feet of space to spread out and do our ministry now. And what a, what a blessing that's going to be. And it goes beyond that. I and mean, we've got a 600-seat uh, sanctuary that's waiting for us uh, down the hall. We're going to be moving into the sanctuary um, sometime in the next decade. And uh, stay, stay patient, story fam. That's being renovated. We've got this awesome gym where we can uh, one day play basketball. As soon as we're done worshiping in here, we'll, I'll, I'll be dunking on everybody in here. And uh, we've got to lower the goals first. They are adjustable, but I'll get around to that. And, and we have so much to look forward to in that regard, we got youth space um, upstairs. We never had a dedicated youth room before. We've got that, which is great because now they'll break stuff and it's their stuff that they're breaking <laughs> instead of the whole church's stuff, like at the other campus. We've got uh, we've got so much else to be thankful for. A, a great prayer chapel upstairs. If you haven't seen the prayer chapel, um, I encourage you to go check it out. Although right now it's the Maybe God podcast studio for now until, until that's renovated as well. Um, we have, of course, uh, that pristine parking lot outside um, that we've been waiting for. That was probably the reason most of you gave to the capital campaign, just the parking, uh, whatever it takes. And uh, you probably noticed those perfectly painted 
parking spots painted by some of the best volunteers you'll ever see who got out there and painted those yellow lines and saved the church tens of thousands of dollars in the process. And, and we're so grateful. And there's some splotches here and there, but hey, we're, we don't believe in perfection or polish at the story. You know, it's all about authenticity. And so that's in one authentic parking lot out there. And we have so much more to be grateful for. So I'll just ask the question that many of you are probably asking right now. The question on many of your minds, especially if you've been around the story for any length of time, is that given how far the Lord has brought us, given everything the Lord has given us, what could possibly, and I mean possibly, have possessed us to bring back the world's least comfortable chairs? (laughs) Y'all remember these? These were the bane of everyone's existence for uh, many years in our original location, And then uh, we got tired of everyone complaining, so we decided to pawn these chairs off on our second campus, the Timber Grove campus, inherited these chairs and used them for about two weeks. And they were like, we can't even, we're done with these chairs, take them back, we'll get our own. And and, and here we are today, uh, back in these chairs, who would have thought? I don't know what to tell you. You know, it's the, the one bad thing about this move. So just, uh, I know you, you like those, those plush chairs over in the museum district. Those aren't coming back, all right? Let's just settle in, have a seat, make yourself at home, and let's enjoy the good things, all right? So I don't know what else to tell you. The chairs are back, unless somebody wants to make a massive chair investment today, which I'm open to, but I don't see it, I don't see it coming. So uh, that, that's, that's where we stand, or that's, I should say that's where we sit today, all right? But chairs aside... How could we possibly ask for anything more as a church? I mean, think of what God has done to to make possible the acquisition that should never have happened. Don't tell the bank I said that. that. They never should have agreed to this. Like, we're gonna fulfill it and everything, but by every earthly measure, this was a deal that was just miraculous. And so many people had to play a part in it, including many of you, and I'm forever grateful for that. And now, really, I think the only remaining question is, like, what do, we, what do we do now? You ever, like, get somewhere you've been waiting to get to, and then you're like, well, now what? Like, you've been on the journey forever. You get to the destination, and it's like, all right, so we didn't think about this part. Like, have, have any of you maybe been the least bit anxious about whether or not um, a massive change like this that we're going through at the Story Church, m- how it might change your church. Like now that we're all grown up, uh, you know, we're a big proper church now. We've got a nice building and we got a little steeple out there and we've got all these grounds to take care of. We've got a mortgage to pay. You know, it's like, are we going to become a different church now? And if so, how so? I think that's been on my mind a lot lately, if I'm honest with you. And, and I've taken a lot of comfort and solace in knowing that we've always had a very firm what at the story. By that, I mean, we've always known our mission. And anybody who's been here a while can probably recite it to you. We're here to inspire non-religious people to do what? Follow Jesus. That's right. Y'all are being shy today, but I believe that you know it, all right? We're here to inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus. Plain and simple, we don't do stuff that doesn't do that. We do as much as we can to, to, to that end, okay? So the what isn't going to change. We're not changing our mission statement. If I had my way, we would have it inscribed in the wall up there. So everybody remembers it at all times. Inspiring non-religious people to follow Jesus. But the question isn't really about the what, it's about the how. Because the how is really what makes the story's approach special, I think. It's really the God-inspired part of the mission. The mission is just words. 
but the how we do the mission is what's important. And so the, the question is, will our how have to change now that we have bills to pay and a mortgage and then, you know, all this stuff to maintain and everything? And, and if so, how will our how change? That's, that's what I've really been obsessing over. So it caused me to think more about what our how has been. What's our how been? Well, I think as succinctly as I can say it, our how has mostly been hidden in the fact that we, we always run toward the fire. And by that, I mean we're not afraid of the heat. We want the smoke that comes with talking about controversial topics. We're always running toward the fire. We're running toward the doubts that people express. We're running toward the tough conversations people have. We're running toward the toughest questions people ask about God or about the Bible or about religion. We're always running toward those questions. We forsake a lot of other normal church things in order to run toward those tough topics. I once preached on Mother's Day a sermon about pornography. Now, that's incredible. If you think about it, like people left the church about, and I don't really blame them in retrospect. I probably should have planned better. But I'm just saying that's a, a clear and present fire in our community. We run toward the fire. We're not afraid of those consequences. And, and so that's what I want to hold on to, not just the what of our mission, but the how we do the mission. I want us to keep running toward the fire, to keep addressing with no hesitation or shame the toughest parts of Scripture, the stuff that most churches don't talk about because it's just awkward and, and maybe uncomfortable. And, and so I, I, I think as I, as I thought through this week's message, um, I think the passage that we're going to study today as part of our series through the book of Acts is going to disavow all of us of any concerns we might have about that changing, the, the how of the story, running to the fire, about that changing. Because God has given me the great honor, I suppose, I didn't feel like an honor as I was writing this message, of preaching on grand opening Sunday about the most uncomfortable story in the entire book of Acts. And I didn't plan it that way, all right? We planned these series well in advance. And when we planned today's passage for November the 12th, we didn't know November 12th would be grand opening. I found out November the 12th was gonna be grand opening. I went to the preaching plan and found this passage and I was like, Lord, please, please, anything. Anything but Acts 5, 1 through 11, Lord. And I thought, maybe I can weasel out of it. It's grand opening. No one would notice. I can do another, you know, whatever. It's like, this is a special day. But I knew. I took it as a challenge from God to hold fast to our how and uh, to not change course. Today's a great opportunity to do that. Some of you are like, what in the world are we about to talk about? Well, this is the story in Acts chapter 5. By the way, this is part 9 of our series called Acts of the Apostles. Um, how, uh, how a handful of nobodies became a movement for everybody. Acts chapter 5 in particular is a story of the time that a husband and wife brought an offering to church, but it wasn't enough of an offering. It was significant, but not enough of an offering, and God you know, killed them on the spot for not bringing enough money to church. Now you're starting to understand my dilemma. Lord, anything but that, not that. <laughs> Today, of all days, can, it, can anything but that. No, we're, we're going to run to the fire today and figure out what happened with our friends Ananias and Sapphira in Acts um, chapter 5, okay? So before we get uh, to that passage, I want to set the table by 
by wrapping up chapter four. We've been in chapter four for like a month already. And so the last section of chapter four is essential in understanding the first section of chapter five. You don't have your, your Bibles that are normally in the chair backs today um, because we don't have a place to put them. We're gonna figure that out and get those Bibles back in circulation. But uh, you probably have the study guides and the scriptures uh, should be on the study guides. You can pull a Bible app out or hopefully you brought your own Bible with you. Let's look at Acts chapter four, verses um, 32 through 37. Let's see what was going on in this part of the church's history. Acts 4.32 says, all the believers, all the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, in them it says, this is important, in them all, not just a few of them or some of them, in all of them, that there were no needy persons among them. Imagine what a community like that would look like. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas. We're gonna learn a lot more about Barnabas later in this series, but this is his introduction. And Barnabas was a nickname that meant son of encouragement. This man, Joseph, aka Barnabas, sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And that's a wrap on chapter four, okay? I just want you to see that before we start chapter five. And I want you to know that, the, that Luke, who wrote Acts, didn't build in the chapter numbers and have the separations and partitions. People did that later to sort of help it be more readable and understandable. But Luke wrote it as one flowing story. So the end of four goes right into five. First, I want us to think about what it must have been like to be a part of a community like the church described in Acts 4. Have you ever seen a community like this, really, where the, the purity of their love was so evident that the whole world paid attention? It's no wonder that the the church grew like wildfire in its first days. Because who wouldn't want to be a part of a community like that? It's utopia. It's, it's like a foreshadowing of heaven. I mean, everybody's giving what they have so that no one goes without. They're all of one mind and of one heart. It's a beautiful thing that was happening. And, and, and that was their, their what. But what was their how? Their how wasn't because just they happened to be better people than most. It, it wasn't because they were the first humans that happened to figure out how to coexist peacefully without destroying each other in community, right? They, they, were, they, they were just regular people, ordinary people. Many of them were working class people, some were poor, some were rich, you know, but they were just people. It wasn't that they were extraordinarily good people. It wasn't about them at all. The how behind their what was the goodness of God made manifest in their presence in such a way the world had never seen before. We're told in Acts 2 through Acts 4 that the Spirit of God himself was not just present among the believers and followers of Jesus. The Spirit of God was making the human hearts in the church his home. He was dwelling not just among them or around them, but within them. 
And because of that manifest presence so powerfully evident in their midst and in their hearts, extraordinary community emerged. A community that got the whole world's attention and was so appealing, was so contagious, everybody wanted it. And I know this isn't most people's experience of the church. Most people would say, that's not what church has been like for me. And if that's you, you're right. The church has never been the same as it was in Acts 4. And the church is, if you feel like the church is full of hypocrites, you're right. And we're going to learn today why. Why we know the church is full of hypocrites and where that corner was turned. All right? So uh, with, with that in mind, let's, let's sort of dig into chapter 5 now and uh, get to the heart of the matter. This isn't going to be fun, um, but <laughs> and it's probably not what you expected to hear on grand opening. Uh, uh, but I have discovered exactly why God orchestrated this for us. And I think it's mission critical that we absorb the message of Acts chapter 5 today. If we're going to be the church God has called us to be in this place, if we're going to step up to the responsibility that we have here, Acts 5 is going to hold a message for us that is absolutely key. So let's read it. Acts 5, verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. So he's the head of household. It was his decision, but his wife was in on the deal. She was in on the heist, Okay. And, uh, and that word, kept back, in Greek is actually a word that means confiscated or misappropriated. So there's malintent that's implied in the scripture. Kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Pay attention to the contrast. Men like Barnabas were bringing all of it. And Ananias and Sapphira brought the rest, or Ananias did in this case, brought the rest and laid it at the apostles' feet, but didn't say, hey, here's the rest, okay? Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. I would imagine that's the case. And then some young men from, I presume from the church, came forward, wrapped up Ananias' body, and carried him out and buried him. Um, that's a cultural sort of norm, to bury the dead quickly and get them outside of the community. About three hours later, Sapphira decided to show up. I don't know why she's so late. I think maybe she... Wanted to make an appearance. That's my take. I might be reading too much into this, but she strikes me as the type. Anyway, Sapphira showed up three hours later for church and came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear, again, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. 
It's an extraordinary day in the life of the church. It's one of those days that I'm not so sure I can fully understand why a man like Luke would choose to even include this in his history of the early church, right? This seems like a day you'd want to leave out, you know? It's not a positive message. doesn't seem like a positive message. seems like something that's not very appealing to the masses. And so maybe we just, Luke, maybe just, you know, maybe just leave that part on the cutting room floor when you come to your final draft. You know what I'm saying? But Luke includes it. And the whole Bible is like that. Have you ever noticed how all the heroes and good guys of the Bible are actually really bad guys? It's on purpose. There's a, there's a meaning to that. And, and it, once you understand that, it will really help you appreciate um, the Bible and the people who wrote it and the God who inspired them to write it. So what's happening here is the original sin, not, not the OG original sin. That's in Genesis. That's Adam and Eve, um, you know, taking the forbidden fruit. Here we have Ananias and Sapphira committing the first sin of the church. After Acts 2, when the church was born, the church had been sin-free up to this point. That's why you had all this purity and beauty abounding in their midst. And here we have the original sin of the church, which involved Ananias and Sapphira doing what? Taking something that was forbidden. But instead of the fruit of the tree, it was the loot from the sale. And they were taking not all of it, not even most of it, but I think a small percentage of it because they still offered up enough of, uh, you know, the sale, the proceeds for it to look realistic as though that was the whole, you know, the whole shebang. How did Peter know? that they were up to no good. I think Peter was dialed in with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit gives us discernment beyond our understanding. And so he was just on to them from the word go, okay? Now we're talking about the church's original sin. The question is what exactly was that sin? Because I think a lot of people who are sort of familiar with the Bible tend to think of the book of Acts chapter five as a story of greed, as if Sapphira and Ananias struggled with a financial uh, misgiving. Like they had a money issue, right? They, 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 they just weren't generous. I don't think that's true at all. I don't think it's a matter of greed at all. I think they were pretty generous people, relative to other people especially, but even, even just them, themselves. I mean, it's an extraordinary gift to, at a moment's notice, sell a piece of land, a property that you own, and, and give even part of the money back, especially most of the money like they gave to the church. I think that's extraordinary. And we saw some people selling assets and things like that when we were trying to, uh, you know, buy this place. And, you know, it's not like, well, they're my favorites. But I did, I, I did understand the extraordinary nature of, of parting ways with an appreciating asset. Because to sell a piece of land, be it a house or a property or whatever, is not only to part ways with what that property is worth today, but to part ways with what that property could be worth a year from now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now. It's an extraordinarily generous gift. And so I don't think the generosity or lack thereof was, was Ananias' and Sapphira's problem. In fact, I think they would have lived to see another day had they um, not been as generous. That's why Peter's like, hey, wasn't that land yours to begin with? Did you hear that part of the story? Wasn't the money, even after you sold it, wasn't that your, at your disposal? Peter's like, you could have done whatever you wanted with the money. 
and live to see another day. Like that's the, that's the sort of impression that we get from the passage. It wasn't about how much they gave or how much they didn't give. There's something more going on, clearly. And Peter tells us, if you're astute in your Bible reading, you probably caught it. Peter says what the original sin of Ananias and Sapphira was. He says, you lied to the Holy Spirit. You told a lie in the Spirit's presence that misrepresented the truth, okay? And, and so that was the original sin of the church. You lied to the Holy Spirit. Now, why did they tell that lie? Did they really need that portion of the money? Probably not. If they did, if they were starving, they probably would have already sold it, right, before all this. They would have kept more of it. I don't know. But, but why did they tell this lie? I think, and it took me a while to get here, and I know y'all are just getting into this passage, and I've been in it like for a couple weeks now. It took me a while to realize why, but I think the why is pretty simple. Once you see what I'm about to tell you about this story, you won't unsee it. It's so clear in the scripture. That's what's happening. And, and, and especially given that Ananias' sin follows, immediately follows the story of Barnabas and how he gave everything. What's going on, I think, with Ananias is he wanted to make a name for himself. He wanted to make a name for himself. To, to put it more bluntly, I think Ananias wanted a nickname, a cool nickname, like Barnabas got, like a lot of the other guys in, in the church had gotten. Guys love nicknames. Real men, I don't know what that means. Men, Love nicknames, all right? If you know a guy, if you're not a guy and you know a guy, I promise you he either has a nickname or he wishes that he did. Especially if it's a nickname a guy cooler than him gave him. That's the best thing ever for a guy is to give, be given some nickname that gives you a, a firm identity. It, couldn't, it doesn't even have to be something profound. For years, my nickname has been Stretch because I got these weirdly long arms that are like Inspector Gadget arms and he stretches and all that stuff, you know? And so I don't mind it. I don't take it as an insult. I like it. It's my identity, you know? And, uh, and I've always kind of like, I'm a guy. That's why Jesus is always nicknaming guys. And people miss this because we are reading, you know, translations of the Bible or whatever, but Jesus was nicknaming dudes all the time. James and John, sons of Zebedee, what'd he call them? Sons of thunder, the sons of thunder. You don't think they loved that? I mean, they've had T-shirts made probably, like Sons of Thunder. Come on, Sons of Thunder. Like that's every guy's dream, every guy's fantasy to have a, a new name given to him, a new identity that's cool, desirable. Even Peter, who's leading the church here and calling out Ananias for his sin here. Like was, was, was Peter his name? Of course not. Peter had, Peter had a name and it, it, it was a name no man really wants. Have you ever met a man named Simon who liked his name? <laughs> I haven't. And Jesus comes along. He's like, you don't have to be Simon anymore. And Simon's like, yes, give it to me. And he's like, you're going to be the rock. That's what Peter means, literally, the rock. Peter wasn't even a name. It was a common noun. And so Jesus called him the rock. And now he's Peter. And he's like, that's the cool, every guy wants a wrestler name. Like, it's a wrestler name, The Rock. And so you have this, you have this sort of um, precedent, 
And then you have Barnabas, who was boring old Joseph, until so everybody saw what a cool guy he was, and they were like, you will be the encourager, which is less of a wrestler name, but still cool. Like the encourager, it's better, it's better than Joseph, probably. And so he, he got a new sort of identity, you know, given to him by the leaders of the church. It's awesome. And I think there's something about that that Ananias craved. Not just the nickname, that's a big part of it, but I think he craved the identity that comes with the recognition of being faithful, being a good guy, looking religious, playing the part, you know? That's exciting. Everybody wants that sort of renown, that sort of acclaim. Of course we want that. Who wouldn't want that? The problem was, it wasn't necessarily that, it wasn't just that Ananias wanted that sort of acclaim. The problem was his character wasn't ready to carry the weight of his desires. His character was underformed. He, he wanted all the praise uh, that comes, you know, presumably with living a good life without actually being a good dude. And that's a normal mistake, right? But in the Christian context, it's like he wanted to wear the cross of Christ like, like jewelry without carrying it. And that's not how it works. Jesus doesn't say, wear, wear my cross and follow me. He says to take up our crosses and follow him. And so there's a, there's a form, formation that has to happen. It's hard. It's a discipline. It's a process, right? And Ananias wanted to jump a few steps and get to the, the glory, you know, and the renown of the end of the process without going through the process. His character wasn't ready. And, and he tried to be someone on the outside that he was not on the inside. What do we call that? What do we call a Christian who... Uh, says one thing and does another. What's the word? Say it. Hypocrite. That's right. Hypocrite. Now, what exactly is a hypocrite? Well, it's not a, a religious word. Jesus used the word a lot, but he just borrowed from the common parlance of his day. Hypocrite was a common noun that just meant actor. When he criticized religious dudes for being hypocrites, he wasn't making up a new word. He was just calling them stage actors, pretenders, drama queens, theater majors. That's kind of what he was saying about them, is that you're just performing. You're putting on a show. It's not really who you are. You're hypocrites. Like, that's what he's saying. And, uh, and, and it's hypocrisy in the end that was the church's original sin. And it's been plaguing the church and Christianity ever since. That's why your non-religious friends, your anti-religion or anti-Christian friends who every time you talk to them about church, they roll their eyes or shut you down or, or they just beg you to stop inviting them or whatever, like your non-religious friends probably think of the church as being a place that's full of what? Say it. Hypocrites. You've heard it. Church is full of hypocrites. Christians aren't who they say they are. They're no better than the rest of us. And here's the really, really hard part. They're absolutely right. And we can look back to Ananias and Sapphira um, and, and find the root of the problem. We Christians are still committing the same mistake. We say we, th we believe one thing. We say we're about one thing. We do another. We say God is holy. We behave in unholy ways. 
We, we, we read the Bible and say that gossip is evil. It's just as evil as murder, according to the New Testament, and yet we just keep on spreading them rumors, and we love to gossip. It's fun to talk about people. What else are we supposed to talk about if we're not going to talk about people? And what else are we going to do with our time? You know, everybody gossips, and that's hypocrisy on the face of it. We say that drunkenness is a sin, and I don't see most Christians abstaining. I see us, in some cases, drinking just as much as non-religious unbelievers might. And that's hypocrisy. Some of you are, doing, are fighting a good fight in that regard. I want to recognize you and, and praise God for your faithfulness. But a lot of us are not exactly winning that battle. And that's hypocrisy, plain and simple. I've realized over the years that really the only way to fight hypocrisy in the church is to start with my own. The only way to fight hypocrisy in your house is to start with your own. Dads, husbands, parents, mothers, roommates, whatever your living situation is, you want to address hypocrisy in your house? There's no other way to go after it than starting with your own and being brutally honest with yourself about how what you say and what you claim to believe doesn't always match what you do or who you are and owning your own hypocrisy. And I think, I think the reason we hesitate with that is we have decided, I think it's because Jesus went after hypocrites so hard, we sort of decided that you can't simultaneously be a Christian and a hypocrite. And if I stand up here and admit that I'm a hypocrite, then I'm gonna leave the door open for the question, is he even a Christian? Am I even a Christian if I'm a hypocrite? That's fundamentally flawed logic. The right way to think about it is if you are a Christian, you must be a hypocrite. Why? Because to be a Christian is to claim the values of Christ. And yet, even as we claim those values, we have all failed to attain those values for ourselves. And so we're all hypocrites in some way or another, the only way that goes really wrong for us is when we deny that fact and keep digging deeper holes for ourselves, telling one lie after another to ourselves and to others instead of being brutally honest and breaking the cycle, breaking the curse. There's nothing about being a hypocrite that says you're not a Christian. In fact, Ananias and Sapphira, the OG hypocrites, I believe, are waiting for us in heaven. I don't think these are apostates or you know, hell-bound unbelievers. Why do I think they're waiting for us in heaven? Because read chapter four. What's it say? Chapter four, it says all of them were together. They were all of one mind. They were all influenced by the spirit of God in their midst. They were all together praising God. And then it says Ananias and Sapphira as though they're part of the all. So it's not like Ananias and Sapphira are suffering eternal torment it's, it's, it's to the contrary, it's like God showed them uh, and all of us through them in that moment the consequences, the just deserts of hypocrisy in the presence of the Spirit of God, in the pure, unadulterated presence of God. That sort of hypocrisy could not be tolerated, let's say. But I do think we're going to get to heaven one day and Ananias is going to be there. It's going to be a really cool conversation. I got to think Ananias is going to be like, still, after all these years, like shaking his head, like, I, 
I just didn't see that one coming. You know, it's like I brought all that money to church with me, pretty proud of myself. And uh, I didn't know. I didn't know that would be the last for me. Um, but, but you're in heaven now, Ananias, so it's cool, right? I, I think he's going to be cool with it. I think especially in heaven, again, in the unadulterated presence of God, I think we're all going to see just how serious an issue our hypocrisy really is and how seriously we should take it in terms of rooting it out in the church. It must be dealt with. The only way to deal with it is honesty. And to be honest, I think our perspective is so limited that we end up drawing false conclusions about a story like Acts 5. We end up looking at Ananias and Sapphira's fate as though God was not fair to them, as though God was a big meanie in the sky who just kind of went, lost his temper, you know, or something. Like, he was just unfair to these two, taking them out for their hypocrisy. And it's because of our clouded judgment that's clouded by sin and, and hypocrisy, we fail to see how and, and acknowledge how kind and how tender and extraordinarily merciful God has been with all the rest of us for not striking us down too, but letting us live and learn and make mistakes and, and, and receive redemption and, and repent and, and be known in the church. And it's a beautiful thing we're talking about here. We're not talking about a, a punitive God. Yes, Ananias and Sapphira suffered their fate, but in some ways it was just so we would open our eyes to the serious nature of sin, in particular, the sin of hypocrisy, lest we create stumbling blocks for others who might want to come here and be a part of this church. So we have to deal with it. My question for you is, and for me, is like, aren't you Aren't you tired of, aren't you tired of being hypocritical? I was thinking how much energy it takes to be a hypocrite. For me, I'm not talking about y'all, I'm talking about me. Y'all too, but us. <laughs> it takes a lot of energy to keep track of all your lies. It takes a lot of energy to maintain the competing narratives that we create in our attempt to save face. And if you're tired of hypocrisy like I am, we just have to acknowledge that, you know? It's, it's, like, it's, like, it's like no matter how far the Lord brings us, we just, it's like, it's like we, we end up right back in the same old stupid chairs, you know? It's like, that's what hypocrisy does to us. It just, it, it's exhausting. And we don't have to live this way. The breakthrough comes with raw, brutal honesty. The, the, the truth of the matter is, Ananias never needed to make a name for himself. Ananias already had a name. His name, Ananias, means blessed by God. If he had but seen that, that he had already been branded by the love of God, that he had already received the rich blessings of God, he would have seen he's already got a name written in heaven, Ananias. He does not need a new name, doesn't need a new identity. My question is, how many of us today are still trying, working, slaving away to make a name for ourselves? And at what cost when we already have a name? We're already, all of us, Ananias, blessed by God. Look at where we are as a church. Look at where you are in your life. Look at how loved, richly blessed you are. Why are you living the way that you are? Why am I living the way that I am? 
why aren't we receiving the freedom and the identity that we have in Christ? I think there's a reason God wanted us to talk about this today. Because if we're going to be the church, he wants us to be in this beautiful place that he's provided for us. It's going to mean us addressing our hypocrisy head on with honesty, with confession, with uh, repentance and self-awareness and with a willingness not just to wear the cross of Christ, but to carry it. So when you tell your friends about this new thing that's happening at your church, and you're, you want to invite them, and you're finding, trying to find a way to invite them, here's what I hope you never say. I hope you never, and I mean this, you never ever say, you got to come and check out this preacher. He's funny sometimes. He's great. Don't tell him I'm great. Don't lie to him. I'm not great. I'm just a dude who struggles like you, and, and so is this whole community. Don't tell him the community is great, the people are great. Don't tell him the building is great. Don't tell him the parking lot's great. Don't tell him anything else is great but God. Tell him how great your God is, and then invite him to come get to know him here in this broken community that's full of hypocrites, but still in process, still underway by the grace of God, still beloved and still blessed. Would y'all pray with me? Jesus, thank you for today and all that we're celebrating. We don't even know where to begin with giving thanks, but you are good, and... Um, we are just grateful for all that you've done. And we thank you for this first day, and we pray for many more like it where we all can gather as broken sinners um, to come to know you better. And uh, by confessing and repenting of our sin, to live into the freedom that you created us for and freely give us by the blood of Jesus. We pray all these things in the powerful name of Christ. Amen.